Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Alona Phillips. Alona is a psychotherapist and founder of Lotus Consulting. Our topic is eating disorders. Alona is going to provide some insights into how to identify them and when they require treatment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, locumstory.com. Maybe you're curious about locums and how it might fit into your career story. But do you know all the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories as diverse as physicians themselves. There's not one solution for everyone. The variety of opportunities might surprise you. Locum Story is an unbiased educational resource. It has tools that let you explore trends in your specialty and compare different locums agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if locums is right for you. Do your own research at locumstory.com. It's easy. And one more thing. Thanks for joining us. The Art of Medicine is available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Alexa will find it for you, too. And now to my guest, Ilona Phillips. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I am thrilled to speak with you today. Ilona, you know, um, we haven't done a program on eating disorders, and I know it's common. I don't know how common it is. I've treated a number of patients with it. You know, and usually when I see them, it's pretty bad because that's when they're, you know, in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we're going to talk about that. But before we get started, tell us a little bit about your training and experience and why you should be the one I'm talking to. (laughs) Thank you. And I can relate to your experience of seeing clients that are in a pretty advanced stage of the illness. um, And I will definitely um, come back to that. But yes. I am the founder um, of Lotus Consulting, which is a psychotherapy practice group, psychotherapy practice in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I built this practice from zero to 30 providers, um, and that has been a wild ride up and down and all around. And and, um, I have a couple of specialties, and they include eating disorders, addiction stuff, and anxiety disorders. Um, And recently more recently i have sort of tapped into the work of eating disorders uh, focusing on children and teens and here's why and this is where we have sort of similarities in our story a little bit because my population historically has been adults um, and college students in particular but when they come to me oftentimes they're pretty deep in an eating disorder obviously they have to be appropriate for outpatient treatment setting but still pretty deep into it and many of them have suffered for a number of years But it, you know, we could do so much better if we identify eating disorders much earlier. Because when you look at patients' growth charts, for example, we see they start so many years back. And that's where we have the most power to address them more um, effectively. We also often have the ally in the family, you know, not, not every family, but a lot of parents and caregivers can really contribute to recovery and speed up recovery recovery and, and improve treatment outcomes so much. I'm very invested in getting this word out there because I don't think it's really out there quite yet. 
Right. So it's a basic tenet of, of all medicine that the earlier you catch a disorder or a disease, the better your chances of uh, curing it or fixing it. That's, right. um, that's for sure. So maybe that brings us back. I know eating disorders are certainly, you know, from television are common in teenage girls, right? That's uh, certainly one uh, demographic that's affected. I And I guess it can occur in younger uh, children as well. And you're right. If you see a 35 year old who's had it for 15 years, you can imagine that the behavior is going to be difficult uh, to uh, to address. That's right. I, so the behaviors and certainly the toll that it has taken by now on the body, right? Whether we think mm -hmm. about hormones, whether we think about bone health, so much there. I mean, it could be heart health, right? A lot of things can be impacted by that point. So am I right? Is it teenage girls who are who are affected the most? So excellent, excellent question. And unfortunately, um, eating disorders often are stereotyped as, as sort of the disorder of rich white girl. And I'm here to, you know, uh, happily say, not happily, but but certainly um, highlight that eating disorders don't really discriminate. Um, we see them across the board uh, when it comes to ages, race and ethnicity, genders. It really, um, no one is really immune, although... We certainly now know um, some of the predisposing factors, right? So we know that there are brain disorders. We know they are highly genetically um, based. So, you know, there's some things we can look out for um, when we try to prevent. Is there still or is there a stigma associated with having an eating disorder? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're bringing this up, because if we continue to label this right as a, as a white girl or teenage girl disorder, we're leaving a lot of people out. Right. And so particularly for men. Right. Um, the number one eating disorders often look a little bit different. I mean, it still may be driven by thinness, but sometimes by masculinity and so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. certainly the macho culture is still very present. And so if we do that, if we stereotype them this way, we are blocking people from seeking treatment, right? We are adding another layer of shame, sort of, am I the only man who has an eating disorder, right? Or am I the only person of color who has an eating disorder? So it's important that we really put it out there. So definitely across the board. And that's certainly, you know, we see this in our caseloads, right? They're pretty diverse. Are eating disorders all body image disorders? In other words, a, a girl who is, uh, say, normal weight, looks in the mirror and sees someone who's overweight and wants to be thinner than really she needs to be as a body dysmorphic uh, disorder. I've read about those. Are all eating disorders that because of that or is it uh, is or are those two separate things? Yeah, another excellent question, and it's complicated. Um, so we have such a range of eating disorders, right? We can go all the way from, let's say, the restrictive end of things from anorexia all the way, let's say, to through bulimia, all the way to binge eating disorders, so on and so forth. And body image is often a, a sort of a very important component. But how it develops um, tends to be different. We also have an eating disorder that is less known, and that's ARFID. So um it always is a mouthful for me. So it's a it's a restri rest restrictive food intake disorder, avoidant restrictive um, um, intake food disorder. And that, for example, starts not, it's not food or it's not body image driven, right? We have sort of three major causes of ARFID. And that is if there was um, 
uh, sort of unfortunate exposure where where the person choked or vomited on food, right? They're going to mm. start avoiding food. And then they're just folks who never really cared about food. They didn't care about the taste of it, just sort of fueling themselves throughout the day. And then there's a third category, and those are folks who have sensory issues, right? So folks who um, are really avoidant of food because of textures, smells, so on and so forth. So that eating disorder, for example, does not start because of body image or wanting to lose weight, to look differently. But unfortunately, with more and more avoidance, right, that person may find themselves very much in a negative energy balance. And when you do that, among other things, it can trigger other eating disorders such as anorexia and certainly body image issues as well. So it can inadvertently also end there. Um, and I will say that all eating disorders, and I think this is a less known um, fact that all eating disorders, including binge eating disorder, bulimia, actually have a factor of restriction. And that is, a, again, less known factor in all eating disorders. Going to pick another question out of the hat. Um, yeah. There is an uh, epidemic of obesity in the Western world of eating too much and not necessarily in a very selective way. Um, is that an eating disorder? Yeah, so that's a really tricky one. Um, I think we need to, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a conversation we could have for hours. I, I, I want to be careful sort of about perpetuating fat phobia because ultimately fear of being fat, which we have sort of learned to villainize, and drives folks to now restrict, right? Go on diets. And we know that one of the highest predictors of eating disorders are actually diets. And then most diets don't really work, right? That folks are not able to sustain it. They often gain more weight than where they began. They could reset their set point. Um, and so I want to be really careful around obesity. I want to um, emphasize, and this is not new to you or, or certainly your listeners, that we're not all supposed to be the same, right? We're not all supposed to be thin and, you know, whatever shape and size. And so there needs to be diversity. Now, you know, are there folks that have a variety of conditions that uh, could contribute to weight that actually is not ideal for them? Sure. But there are also a lot of folks who are in sort of larger bodies and very healthy, right? On the other hand, look at anorexia, right? If someone is really starved, and malnourished, they are not well. So I think it's a really tricky conversation, but I'm I'm happy to sort of follow up if you have follow-up questions on that. Well, given that eating disorders are often accompanied by shame, where the person may not seek care or and may not be eager to reveal the problem, how do you diagnose it? Yeah. Very good question and, and, and a sad, sad answer that we actually, some of our research shows us that folks often don't seek care um, until two or six years on average. So you're absolutely right. This can stop folks from um, seeking care. Fortunately, that there are, you know, health at every size focused physicians now. And, and um, so even folks in the fat community sort of know where, where uh, sort of safe providers are, if you will. And mm. so I think that that's how we are opening the doors. Um, but yeah, we don't want to perpetuate chronic issues of any kind, right? And so we want folks to be able to come to their physician or, you know, a healthcare provider um, knowing that they will be safe and that, that, that weight will not be automatically sort of the answer to all health concerns. Now, kind of a related question, how often would someone with an eating disorder have a comorbid 
DSM diagnosis? In other words, if I found someone with a DSM diagnosis, should I look for an eating disorder along with it? Or are these isolated? Excellent, excellent question. Um, so yes, right, we often see comorbidities depending on the eating disorder. So with anorexia, we're also starting to see some genetic um, uh, overlaps. And, and fortunately, we have research coming out even with autism, for example, right? But certainly mm -hmm. some of the comorbidities that we see are anxiety disorders, right? OCD in particular, um, but it couldn't be any number of um, diagnoses. For folks with binge eating disorder, oftentimes you may see bipolar, you may see ADHD, but again, it can also come sort of back and forth, right? So it doesn't mean binge eating disorder is only ADHD or, or, or um, uh, bipolar disorder. This could very much be certainly with someone with anorexia as well. But yeah, we certainly look for that. And um, I think this is not new to you either, right? Like that there are certain personality and temperament factors that we also often see, such as perfectionism. Uh, you know, my clients with eating disorders are some of the most brilliant clients I have. They're often very successful academically and, and in life otherwise until the eating disorder really takes hold really strongly and then all of that starts to suffer. But um, we can certainly look for that. Mm -hmm. So there's some overflow of the perfectionism, which is certainly uh, beneficial in a lot of professions, but isn't that helpful when you're <laughs> trying to eat something in a restaurant? That's right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Which might not be uh, perfect. So, okay. So, so how do you, do you have to wait until these patients come to you? How do you find them or how do they find yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very good question. Um, you know, I will say having worked with a, a lot of college students and, and also actually medical residents and, and, and um, physicians and, and other healthcare providers, you know, the awareness is helping us. Right. I think that um, especially college students, they sort of have no qualms for the most part about seeking mental health. Many of them have been in therapy mm. before. So um, I think that things are definitely changing and that's wonderful. But yeah, we still got to keep getting the word out there um, as much as we can. And, and um, you know, there are communities that are still a little bit more hesitant about seeking help. Right. So we it's good to sort of target that. And listen, I also don't think that therapy is sort of the answer for everyone. Right. So if for um, some folks it is their mentor or just their physician, that's a great start. Um you know, eating disorders in particular are so darn specialized. Um, I remember working with a kiddo who very much fit the criteria of anorexia. And um, we know hyperlipidemia can be part of anorexia, right? But their physician, unfortunately, was saying high cholesterol, you should cut out full fat products. And we actually need them for refeeding of anorexia. So it's a really specialized care. And so when I say, hey, you don't have to go to a therapist for everything, I mean that, but there's just some concerns that we unfortunately need specialists, right? And so uh, whether it's a physician or, or eating disorder specialized psychotherapist, that's ideal. So interdisciplinary may be the way to go for some patients. You bet. Um, so, okay. So it's primarily, I think it's fair to say, a mental health disorder most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do about it? Um, good question. So I would say that it's a physical and mental health disorder, right? And so um, with the children and teens in particular, number one step really is refeeding. And actually in all eating disorders, 
we have to step number one is stabilize the food intake, right? So we are making sure that they are eating three meals a day, two to three snacks a day. Certainly someone who has to be refeeding because they're severely malnourished and, and underweight. Um, you really, it takes really high caloric intake, high fat diet to really renourish that brain as quickly as we can. Um, in terms of therapy, um, so for children and teens, it's usually family-based treatment. Again, the, the caregivers can play such an important part in this. I actually have a course, it's called the Empowered, Empowered Care Program, which really outlines a roadmap for parents, you know, who find themselves suddenly sort of having a child with eating disorder and, you know, like, what do I do? What's the first step? How do I navigate the system? What are we looking for? What kind of labs? And what are the therapeutic approaches that we can actually use? And, and how do we find a provider? So family-based treatment, definitely for the children and, and um, teens. And then I use a lot of dialectical behavioral therapy, which, which you know, is grounded in mindfulness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. Um, Say that so, again. What was that first word? What it, kind of therapy? Yeah, dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical um, behavior therapy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it targets, you know, a lot of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and we can use that with the children and teens, as well as their families. So it's a wonderful thing. Everyone is learning skills. I will say that if the brain is malnourished, the therapy will not really permeate, right? So we really mm. have to nourish first and then, then plug in all these different tools that we have. Now, I know each case is different, but mm -hmm. overall, what's the prognosis for someone with an eating disorder? Do they, does anybody get better? Do they all get better? Somewhere in between? What's How, how yeah. does... How does it? Another, yeah, another really important question. And I think you, that sort of is bringing us a little bit full circle to where we began today. And that is a lot of it depends on how quickly we catch it, right? The earlier we catch mm. it, the higher, the better chances of recovery, full recovery, lower chance of relapse, so on and so forth. But listen, I have also seen folks who have been struggling for many years and still make full recovery. Um, there are some folks who, you know, may never be able to sort of go to intuitive eating and really paying attention to their hunger satiety cues where, you know, there, there might be some folks who still will have to be a little bit more rigid about, okay, I got to fuel every so many hours. I can't totally hmm. rely on my hunger satiety cues, but a lot of folks truly make full recovery. Oh, well, that's uh, encouraging. Now, uh, let's see. One last question about treatment. How often do you use medications, for example? Yeah, another excellent question. So again, right, a lot of it will depend on the eating disorder. A lot of it will depend on how malnourished that brain is. Um, but if we renourish the brain and there, you know, now we are still seeing that there's depression or anxiety um, mm. and for some folks, even during, right? Meds have their right place in eating disorder treatment for sure. And sometimes even low dose antipsychotics because what you were mentioning earlier, right? Someone who is thin may see a very different image in the mirror. And that resembles that anti, you know, the psychotic presentation a little bit when you think about it, right? So low-dose antipsychotics can be part of it. Um, for folks with binge eating disorder, we are really seeing some um um uh, results with meds that have been developed for um ADHD, ADD, right? So that mm. impulse control and and certainly the diagnostic overlap is there too. So it really depends. Prozac, wonderfully effective as bulimia. Um, so it really depends, right? Where the patient is, what kind of a disorder they have, what came first? Mm. Are we renourished, right? Because when the brain is not nourished, the meds are not gonna do all that much in some of these cases. So it really depends. What about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? 
Yeah, yeah. So CBT is very much indicated for treatment of eating disorders. And, and actually, the DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, is what we call the third wave of CBTs. It just adds this component of, of mindfulness-based work, but it really is. It has a lot of overlap with just standard CBT. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. That's sort of where I started and um, then sort of cross over more to these uh, more mindful, mindfulness-based approaches such as dialectical behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy as well. So let's suppose there's someone listening to this podcast and they have an eating disorder and they're not happy about it and they haven't told anybody. What should mm-hmm. they do? Yeah, do tell. I do believe that, you know, this is oversimplified and please take this with a grain of salt, but we are only as secret as our we are only as sick as our deepest secret, right? So as you were talking about the layer of shame, please, please, please seek help. Things can absolutely get better. You know, there are some folks that saw treatment and and maybe it didn't go well right so maybe it was not the right Mm. provider maybe it was not the right time so of course i'm gonna encourage them please please talk to someone make the first step maybe you're more comfortable with your physician maybe you're more comfortable sharing with a family member or a friend but help is available this does not have to be your story all right well that's that's pretty encouraging uh before we wrap up is there anything you'd like to add I think that that was a powerful note, seek help. Um, But I'm also happy to answer questions at any point, really. Obviously, this is uh, for educational purposes. This is not treatment. And when you reach out to me, unless you're in the state of Michigan, I cannot treat you either. But I'm certainly, you know, happy to point folks to treatment resources um, and answer basic questions as well. And so um, folks can find me at lotusconsultingpllc.com or ilonaphillips.com. Again, happy to connect. Oh, that's great. And I'll I'll put those uh, addresses in the show notes. Well, Beautiful. many thanks to Ilona Phillips for joining me on The Art of Medicine. Thank you so much for having me and uh, take care. Before we close, I'd like to give another thanks to our sponsor, locumstory.com, a resource where providers can get real unbiased answers about locum tenants. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner. See you next time. This program is hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Wilner, MD, FACP, FAAN. Guests receive no financial compensation for their appearance on the art of medicine. Andrew Wilner, MD, is Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, Memphis, Tennessee. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program belong solely to Dr. Wilner and his guests and not necessarily to their employers, organizations, or other group or individual. While this program intends to be informative, it is meant for entertainment purposes only. The Art of Medicine does not offer professional financial, legal, or medical advice. Dr. Wilner and his guests assume no responsibility or liability for any damages, financial or otherwise, that arise in connection with consuming this program's content. Thanks for watching. For more episodes of The Art of Medicine, please subscribe. www.andrewwilner.com